professional sports days that we have witnessed as a collective. I'm joined alongside Kale Clinton here. Kale, we sat in your living room for what, about 10 hours yesterday. We watched, I would estimate, maybe 40 total hours of sports content given all the screens we had up. Uh, how are you recovering from that day? Listen, I need more than caffeine, I need Christ. That is, it was what a day full of adrenaline. We had Browns Chargers coinciding with Red Sox Rays in my apartment. And, man, I, I convinced Jackson he had stayed until the 12th inning. I convinced him, come on, just hold on for one more inning. Turns out all the Red Sox needed was one more inning. We had one of the most insane uh, outfield plays that maybe in the 2021 MLB season. And then I end up, in the middle of it all, calling my shot on the Christian Vasquez home run as the uh, – Announcer said there had been seven walk-off home runs by a catcher in postseason history. I said, how about an eighth? While the pitch was in play, immediately Christian Vasquez, first pitch he sees, sends it over the monster. I'm worse for wear today, but man, was it a dopamine rush for the ages. <laughs> yeah, so right after that pitch was thrown, uh, Kale did indeed call out that this was going to be a walk-off home run. So I give him credit for being baseball Nostradamus. I then took it from there. I took it upon myself to bounce off every wall in his apartment. I ran to the door, back from the door, and basically made a fool of myself for about two and a half minutes. So just goes to show you that whatever age you are, you never stop being a little kid when it comes to your favorite teams. And it was a great sports day. And we have a lot to talk about when it comes to the football side of things, transitioning back into our chosen sport here. And I think we have to start with Sunday Night Football. I mean, it gets boring just doing that every week, but this was probably the biggest regular season game so far, uh, at least from a billing perspective. And speaking of a billing perspective, the Bills, really, the Bills really prevailed last night. That was an impressive top-to-bottom effort. Kale, why do you think the Bills were able to have the success they did against the Chiefs last night? Listen, it was a really impressive effort by the Bills' defense. You know you did a good job when Miko Hardman is leading the game in both receptions and total yards. They were able to hold uh, Tyreek Hill to seven receptions on 13 targets for 63 yards. Uh, Travis Kelsey, they were able to hold six receptions on 10 targets for 57 yards and a touchdown. Both of them had longest plays of 17 and 15, so they were really taking away the explosive plays there. I think what really is a testament to this Bills team is just the sheer level of depth that they have on the defensive side of the ball. NBC kept flashing those snap counts. They've got guys rotating in all over the place on the front seven. Uh, that secondary stood stout. And what was really most impressive was this was a really uncharacteristically bad performance by Patrick Mahomes. Uh, he was skipping balls off the turf. I think the weather conditions especially uh, forced him into some, uh, like, for, you know, it's very rare that Tyreek Hill has a ball bounce off his hands and into the arms of an opposing defender. But, you know, credit to the Bills. They were able to rush for, get consistent pressure by rushing for. It didn't show up in sacks. They had two sacks for zero net yards lost. But they really held Pat Mahomes every time he dropped back. He was either running out of the pocket, uh, rolling out, or he had a hand in his face when he was throwing the ball. And I think a lot of those 
miscues by Pat Mahomes on the offensive side of the ball came down to just a sheer defensive effort by the number one defensive DVOA team in football. Yeah, you know, this game really kind of laid bare or exposed me for this theory that I had going into it, which was that uh, I liked the Chiefs because I think usually good offense beats good defense. And I think that despite the fact that the Bills' advanced metrics on defense looked incredible heading into the week, I was like, okay, they haven't seen a great offense yet. Uh, They've seen Davis Mills. They've seen Taylor Heineke. Here comes Patrick Mahomes in Patrick Mahomes' home building, mind you. And they just proved that. They really are that good, I think. Uh, this is not to discredit the Chiefs at all. I, I, I still have hope in them to kind of turn it around a little bit, uh, but I really think the Bills kind of took over the keys a little bit in terms of you know the balance of power in the AFC, and I think there are some other teams that are ahead of the Chiefs now too based on what we've seen. So it was really a disappointing performance for them, but I, I don't want to take away anything from what the Bills did on either side of the ball, frankly. I wouldn't give... Too much credit to this Bills offense. I still have some glaring questions about them. Uh, yes, this was by far Josh Allen's best game of the season. But also, you got to think of it, Dawson Knox had a 53-yard touchdown on busted coverage. Emmanuel Sanders had a 35-yard touchdown on busted coverage. Stephon Diggs had a 61-yard catch that if he just remembered that there were defenders around him and didn't decide to almost fully turn his body to look back at the rest of the field of play, that 61-yard catch he had would have also been a touchdown. Yeah, they didn't score on it, but this was... They didn't score a touchdown on it, rather. But this was, you know, it was an impressive effort by the Bills' offense, but it wasn't this monumental shift back to 2020 Bills' offensive form. I think they're still very talented offense. I think when it works, it works. But this isn't a world-beating offense. This is a fantastic defense with a good offense. And when we see that variance come back down to level, uh, you know, I think the Chiefs' defense is going to perform better... At some point, it has to shake out. Uh, it's currently, through five weeks, it is the seventh worst defense in the history of DVOA. Uh, that'll come out tomorrow when the numbers get released, or today when the numbers get released, because this comes out on Tuesday. But it's a, uh, you know, water will find its level a little bit, but, you know, credit to the Bills, man. This is a real well-rounded, full-team effort there. Yeah, and the thing is, if they're going to be a dominant defense, even just having the potential to have an explosive game on offense is kind of enough in some ways. I think that's more than we can really say about pretty much any other team except maybe one that we'll get into in just a minute here. But the Chiefs, I mean, the defense is really, it has been abysmal. And I I, want to say things are going to get better, but I'm not seeing a ton of evidence for that so far. I mean, you do just talk about like, hey, water finds its level. They've always been a bend-don't-break defense. But from a perspective of like who stands out on this defense as even being like competent or above average, like we we talk about Tyre Matthew a lot. All I see from Tyre Matthew nowadays is running around the field with his gloves in the air, going through the five stages of grief. Like where where do things get better for this defense? Listen, they're going to get Chris Jones back. Uh, Frank Clark is also going to perform better than he's been performing. Uh, but yeah, I think you know my biggest takeaway is from. Sunday is that the week three matchup between the Chiefs and Chargers is about all I've needed to see. Like, that tells me all I need to know about the AFC West. First off, the Raiders lose to the Bears. The Broncos lose to the Steelers. Their 3-0 starts, I don't want to call it too fluky because I want to give the Raiders credit for a lot of their hard-fought victories, and I want to give the 
Broncos some benefit of the doubt considering all that they've lost on the offensive side of the ball. But it's a it's a two team race between the Chiefs and the Chargers, and the Chargers are winning that race really big right now. The Chiefs defense, you know, it's we saw it in that game, the just the sheer ineptitude on the defensive side <laughs> of the ball. I think it you know the biggest thing for me on the Chiefs defense, while we let's hold on to them a little bit longer, is uh Daniel Sorensen, who has been a pretty uh, competent, I'd say, uh, a little bit above average uh, defensive player safety in in the Pat Mahomes era, has looked abysmal this year. You know, it's and I don't think the one touchdown to Dawson Knox is completely his fault. He holds coverage for about five, six seconds. That's about what you can ask for for the average play, but just he's looked really bad consistently. The Chargers, on the other hand, are dogs. And not talking about the dog pound in Cleveland, that was a back-and-forth game for the ages. That was just a pure rush. That was f- what a game. So it, fun. It was Incredibly you know, fun game. This is a Chargers team that I, I still, you know, let's, let's not, uh, you know, get ahead of ourselves here. I think this is still a... Uh, you know, a, you know, across the board, analytics, metrics, don't love this Chargers offense. It's it's really run through Herbert, Eckler, Keenan Allen, and Mike Williams with a fine offensive line, but they don't have a ton of uh, don't have a ton of offensive depth depth weapons wise, and they're also extremely top heavy defensively. It is a very fragile Derwin James carrying this secondary. It is a Joey Bosa away from really being below average, but Joey Bosa and Derwin James have been dominant. But what I'm really most impressed with from this Chargers team is just the sheer amount of fight that these guys have. They've had, especially in that Cleveland game, they had a bunch of just blown plays, whether it was the David Njoku touchdown, a Nick Chubb run broken off for big yardage, and eventually a touchdown. But, man, this team has some fight in it. Funny enough, one of the Worst decisions uh, from a win percentage model from Edge Sports. Uh, the second worst decision of the weekend. Actually, no, sorry. The worst decision of the weekend was the Browns' decision to punt on uh, with two minutes and twelve seconds left on fourth and six on their own eighteen. Yeah, that might be counterintuitive. With Browns convert that, they ice this game. The fact that they're able to give the ball back to the Chargers and the Chargers are able to fight. Chargers were going forward on fourth down. They're coming back, and they're responding to every big play that they let up. This team's a little bit shaky, but, I mean, you've got to really give them credit for that 4 and one start, man. This team has some fight, and credit to Brandon Staley, too, for being the analytics darling that everyone expected him to be. Well, not only have they been just really good analytics-wise, not only have their, their offense has shown a lot, and so has the defense in a lot of cases, but they've also won three games, by my count, that – the Chargers of the 2010s would have comfortably found an excruciating way to lose. And you go all the way back to week one, uh, you know, they got some bad calls. They, you know, Washington was in that game until the very end. They find a way to pull it out. That Chiefs game with the missed extra point with Patrick Mahomes on the other side, I still can't figure out how the Chargers, this franchise, found a way to pull it out. And even yesterday with... Again, missed extra point leaves them down one with just minutes to play. They still find a way to get the ball back, punch it into the end zone. In fact, they didn't even mean to punch it into the end zone, but their offense is so good that the defense is helping them score touchdowns. I mean, that's the point that we're at right now with these Chargers. And I think uh, from a weapons perspective, uh, we have to give Mike Williams some shine today. Uh, He's been 
pretty much Kale's favorite receiver in the NFL so far this year, so I want to let him chime in here, but eight catches, 165, and two touchdowns. I mean, what does it say about this guy that he's just popping off like that now? Listen, I think it's not necessarily, you know, a Mike Williams that we haven't seen before. It's more, it's a Mike Williams in the way that we've never seen him used before. Uh, you know, this is now a guy that finally looks like the 6 overall pick that he was coming out of the what, 2017 draft? Yeah. Uh, the, you know, it for years in the Anthony Lynn offense, Mike Williams was essentially used as a, more or less a deep threat gadget guy. He was sent on go routes, he was sent on deep posts, and he was sent on deep corners. Uh, and that really helped the Charger field stretching ability, but it really shook out to Mike Williams being sort of one-dimensional, just a field stretcher, and that's about it. Now, he has probably the most usage, I think the most usage of any wide receiver on the uh, Chargers offense. He's second in receptions with 31 compared to Keenan Allen's 34. Uh, he sits two targets behind Keenan Allen, 51 to 53 respectively. He's got 15.2 yards per reception. He's got six touchdowns on the year, the longest of 72, seven big plays from the year. It's, they're using, you know, the Joe Lombardi offense that they're running in uh, Los Angeles is much different than anything that Anthony Lynn had ever even dreamed of in his wettest dreams coming out of the LA head coaching job because it is. <laughs> I don't really want to think about it. Listen, Anthony let's Lynn's not let's dream. not touch on it. Let me ex- <laughs> let me use a metaphor and leave it. Uh, <laughs> it's but it's it's really really impressive just how it it makes this offense such a bigger threat, and I think it's also a bit why the. You know, analytics models don't love this Chargers offense as much because without Mike Williams, this wouldn't be as flashy an offense at all. Their third best receiver is Austin Eckler, Jared Cook, but their third best wide receiver is what, Jalen Guyton? Donald Parham. Yeah, and beyond that, it's Joshua Palmer, who has five receptions on the year, six targets. It's really, you know, the crux of this offense is built around Allen, Williams, and Eckler, but the fact that Williams has emerged as this really versatile receiving threat is what's made this Chargers offense so explosive. And and what do the advanced metrics say about just the Chargers running the ball as well? Because they weren't able to do it particularly effectively yesterday. Herbie kind of stepped in and saved them, and so did Joshua Kelly in his brief appearances. And they did account for three touchdowns on the ground, but I think what we've seen is when they try to pound the ball and just kill the clock and establish that with Eckler, it's been... You know, it's it's not terrible. It's not like their their rushing offense is bad, but it's not like they have you know like a two headed monster in the backfield. Kelly hasn't really proven to be anything, or Jackson for that matter. And I think yeah, when your offense is pretty much built around these three guys, that's when you start to get a little bit worried. Just in the case of you know whether one of them gets injured or if a defense figures out a way to take away two of them. Yeah, I mean coming into the game on Sunday, uh, Chargers ranked 14th in offensive rushing DVOA. Uh, you know, sitting around league average, they're not getting a ton of production. But I think the benefit of that Chargers offense in terms of the uh, running backs in the game is just the versatility of Austin. Sure, sure. Uh, coming into the season, I, you know, maybe a little too boldly stated that Austin Eckler was going to have an Alvin Kamara-like effect on this uh, Chargers offense. Uh, just in terms of his versatility as the go-to back, but also one of the leading backs in the Chargers offense, and he hasn't seen the full volume of a Kamara, but he has 
He's leading the team in rushing, uh, 349 yards on the season, 5.2 uh, yards per carry, and he's also third on the team in receptions, beating out Jared Cook at a rate of 23 receptions to 17. And he's catching the ball. He's had two missed targets on the season. He's got 25 targets, 23 receptions. He's getting uh, 8.4 yards per uh, 8.4 yards per reception with three receiving touchdowns. It's he's been a real versatile weapon. I think the benefit of also having uh, some legs on Herbert, uh, even if it is just four offensive weapons plus Jared Cook, you've got to worry about all four of them at all times. And I think that's what is making this Chargers defense, while top heavy, one of the most threatening to cover in the league. Yeah, well, that's the thing about the Chargers is uh, something I mentioned to you yesterday is I feel like they're uh, they're sort of like the Bills from last year, maybe even a year and a half ago. Like they're they're just figuring out this early stage of their development. They aren't as deep as the Bills, but they have the young quarterback who's coming into his own. They have good weapons. They have really solid defensive players, and they have the young coach who's just building rapport with this team. So I don't know if this is the Chargers' year necessarily. I would be very scared to play them this year regardless. I almost Another comparison I might bring up is the 2012 Seahawks, that team that didn't win the NFC but felt like they gave the Falcons everything they could possibly handle. And Russ Wilson and the Legion of Boom, like we knew moving forward that that was going to be the team to beat. I feel like even if the Chargers don't win it this year, they could potentially establish themselves as the future team to beat in the AFC. I don't love it. But you know, if you're feeling if you're feeling spicy, you know, sprinkle a sprinkle a little Chargers Super Bowl fourteen to one plus fourteen hundred. Uh, you know, weirder things have happened. I agree. We're not a gambling show necessarily. We'll drop a nugget every once in a while, though. So hey, if you can still get Chargers fourteen to one today, not a bad idea. Uh, speaking of teams, though, that we uh, didn't necessarily have Super Bowl hopes for coming into the year, but that have really established themselves, I want to transition into the third thing that we think we learned this week, and that is concerning the Arizona Cardinals, who didn't put together the most impressive performance yesterday, but what I would say we learned about them is the fact they were able to still come out with the win yesterday uh, and do it in the fashion they did with only 230 yards passing from Kyler, and not a particularly strong rushing game, three and a half yards per carry. I think that says something about them. And now we look at them, they're the only 5-0 and team in the league. They have a defense that's way better than I think either of us could have predicted. And if you can show me that you can win in-division games in consecutive weeks in different fashions, I'm really impressed by that. And I think we should be putting as much stock as we can into the fact that the Cardinals are pretty for real. Yeah, I mean... I didn't have a chance to necessarily catch it as much as I'd have liked to and really key in on it. I'm going to have to watch it on the All-22 later. But the biggest thing that impressed me out of this game, uh, just, you know, seeing what I saw thus far, this is the first game the Char- or the Cardinals haven't scored 30 points this season. It is really, really impressive to me that this is a team that doesn't necessarily have to lean on just a high-powered offense with the level of and the depth of skill position players that they have. This is a defensive, grinded-out win. Uh, currently, you know, once the numbers come out from Football Outsiders this week, the Chargers are going to rank, or I keep saying the Chargers, the Cardinals are going to rank 8th in offensive DVOA and 4th in defensive DVOA, especially considering what they've got in their secondary beyond Buda Baker. This team really doesn't have anyone, especially the cornerback position. I am really, really impressed with what this Cardinals team has been able to do. If you told me at the beginning of the season 
that the Cardinals would have a top five defense in the league, I'd laugh you out of the room. <laughs> I really, like, the fact that they got this win under their belt in the fashion that they did and being able to kind of stand pat and hold the Niners to 10 points and, you know, when their offense wasn't clicking the way they have been this season, the fact that they were able to pull this win out, you know, this is now not just, you know, a fluky win on a one-sided team. This is a well-rounded, full, complete football team. In Absolutely. And their, I mean, their receiving core is deeper than I think we gave it credit for as well. Not a big A.J. Green week. I know he had been unleashed a few times. Only one catch on two targets yesterday. But Hopkins and Rondale Moore are going back and forth trying to make the highlight catch of the week for them. I mean, Hopkins had three that kind of made me just go, whoa. Like, that's a really impressive catch. And Rondale Moore had the tiptoe along the sideline that I was stunned by. Like, this is not something you expect to see out of a, a wide receiver three for the Arizona Cardinals, especially in years past. So the depth of skill players that they have, while maybe not, you know, as as many marquee names as a Chargers team or a Bills team, I think has been a lot of fun to watch develop over the course of the season. Oh, definitely. They are going to be, in, especially in one of the most contentious divisions in football, a little bit different now that Russell Wilson will be missed for about half the season uh, and Geno Smith will fill in those reps but headed into this season this was by far one of the most contentious divisions in football and it's really impressive to see the Cardinals come out on top in this one. Yeah and they needed it too the Rams obviously pick up the win Thursday night uh, Stafford looked good uh, there was an emergence from a man who I'm going to talk about a little bit later in the program that I'm really excited to get into, but huge win for Arizona. Glad they were able to pull it out. And now on to our fourth agenda item for the week. Yesterday was weird, guys. It was <laughs> it was a very strange day of watching football, and I think Kale has a little bit more on what was so particularly strange about it. Special teams, it's a real hard part of the game. Week five this week, kickers missed 12 extra points. That ties an NFL record. They also missed 12 field goals. According to ESPN, it's the first week since they moved back to PAT in 2016 to have at least 10 missed field goals and at least 10 missed extra points. You know, whether it's the debacle in the Packers-Bengals game, uh, whatever we saw in the uh, Texans-Pats game, that mess, uh, it, was, it was a bad showing for kickers that day. And not only that, you know, punters had a tough time, too. We'll talk about Houston Pats later on in the program and that wacky punt. But, you know, the Eagles had a blocked punt to, uh, you know, really secure that game. It was, a, it was a weird day for the third phase of the game. Yeah, and it was a weird, I mean, we've been watching it all season with uh, our beloved Syracuse Orange. We haven't seemed to be able to get through a game without shanking at least two punts, so that's been frustrating, and it seemed to have carried over to the pro game yesterday as well. We Let's, you know, before we, I, I want to cut this tangent off before we really go in on the Dino Babers thing, because let's, <laughs> let's, stick, let's stick to pro ball here. <laughs> you got to listen to the Monday morning blitz for Kale's thoughts on uh, Dino Babers and the Syracuse Orange. But special teams, very difficult. We have some head scratchers to talk about later on. But before we do that, it's time to go through and give people some shine. Game ball season, offensive game balls. Kale, lead us off with a hot take. A lot of my game balls this week are going to be sort of lifetime achievement awards or, you know, Awards for the first quarter of the season that we may not have touched on because we become victims of the moment. But 
I don't need to go too far back to actually give this player credit. My offensive ball is going to the old man, Tom Brady. This is, surprisingly enough, the first time in his career at 44 years old. He's gone for 400 yards passing and five touchdowns. I mean, I get it. It's Miami. and But, you know, this game wasn't one score at this point. It was a close one, but, I mean, 45-17 to 17 performance, uh, you know, really carried by the level of weapons he has in that offensive system with uh, Bruce Arians. Antonio Brown had that big 62-yard touchdown, finished the day with seven receptions, 124 yards, two touchdowns. Mike Evans also had a pair of touchdowns in a 113-yard game. Chris Godwin sprinkling in another 70 yards on seven receptions. But, man, I think Tom Brady is just going to have to get dragged off the field if he ever ends up retiring because this, this streak... Every time I turn on my TV and watch Tom Brady, I think there's going to be some glimmer of regression, some just morsel that Father Time is actually undefeated, but Father Time is on the ropes right now. <laughs> He's struggling, and it's, it is it is really unbelievable to see Brady continue to grow with this Bucks offense. and. He's not only not showing signs of age, I think he's he's getting more mobile sometimes. Like his pocket his pocket mobility's already been good, but we saw him run for it on third and eight against the Pats and pick up a huge first down last week. Uh, I mean, he just looks that Florida air just rejuvenates you, I think. And I don't know how many years he's got left, but I, I'm I'm gonna stop doubting him whenever he says I think I can play till fifty, till fifty five. I mean, I it's it's done. It's Tom Brady's defeated. Uh, any expectations we could have possibly ever had. I don't know if it's the Florida air. I don't know if it's Alex Guerrero. I don't know if it's not eating nightshades or if it's just pure black magic. But Which we cannot rule out. We can't. We can't. It has to be somewhere in the TV 12 method has to be a little bit of sorcery because this is unprecedented. Or potentially some Satanism as well. I can't. (laughs) I'm not ruling anything out. So Tom Brady won a game ball last year as well. Just goes to show... The goat is only getting goatier and picks up another one here. Let's move on to mine. I have a guy who it pains me a little bit because I know we don't talk about fantasy much on this program, but I had the option to trade for this guy in fantasy this week. I turned it down, and he responded by putting up a wonderful performance that everyone was waiting for. Robert Woods led the league in catches this week, tied with Devontae Adams with 12 receptions. He had 150 yards. He did not score a touchdown. I don't particularly care. That's a little bit of chance uh, at work. Robert Woods was the driving force for that Rams offense on Thursday night. Going into Seattle is always a tough task. Doing it on a short week only makes it tougher, and he really showed up. And didn't even have all that many great thrown balls from Matt Stafford. I could count a few that were, you know, maybe a bit underthrown and could have led to a touchdown if he had hit him in stride. And Woods was just all reliable, and it was really nice to see him get back to the Robert Woods we all knew he could be. Listen, every week I write a uh, targets and touches article for Fantasy Six Pack, and coming out of week three, I declared Robert Woods my buy low candidate. Uh, you know, at some point Cooper Cup was going to have to come down from heaven and just, you know fall back to earth and we had to eventually get the Robert Woods that we would eventually, you know, that has been consistently the wide receiver one in LA for the last couple of years. And it finally happened. It clicked in that game, you know, Robert Woods, 150 yards on 12 receptions, 14 targets, converting a lot of them. It's just, you know, you can't go wrong with him. You really can't. 
And not to mention, Cooper Cup was still really good in this game, had seven catches for 92. If you combine their two stat lines, they put up 19 catches for 242 yards. That is as good a one-two punch as you're ever going to find, you know. The Rams have been cooking all year, and I don't want to say anybody soured on them after losing to the Cardinals last week, but it was definitely a bit of a jolt to the system, and I think this game helped us remember that this Rams team is still absolutely a threat to take home the NFC Championship come January. So, really nice performance from them, and I wanted to reward Robert Woods with my game ball. That'll lead us into our defensive game balls, and like I said, it's a bit more of a uh, you know cumulative game ball season for me, but you know, this guy's still putting up a fight. Uh, I'm giving my game, uh, my defensive game ball to Travon Diggs of the Dallas Cowboys. This is now the fifth straight game he's had an interception. Six interceptions on the season now. I mean, it's shocking that we haven't had a chance to bring him up yet this season. But it, his time is due. It was, you know, this wasn't necessarily his flashiest performance of the bunch, but, I mean, it is... This is not a guy that I was expecting to be a depoy front runner, let alone a depoy candidate headed into this season, but he is absolutely looking like the defensive player of the year at the moment. Not only that, I think just to say that he didn't necessarily shine yesterday, I mean, if we go through defensive box scores, he still would have been near the top of the list from yesterday in terms of you know being in consideration for our game balls. I mean, he... He picked off a pass and uh, defended one more. I always look at that passes defense stat when I'm trying to decide who gets my game ball because I think it does show not just who's making the big plays but who's disrupting the passing game. And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an interception to be a huge play, if you remember that Stephon Gilmore breakout from the AFC Championship. So, uh, and, and also had five tackles, which was tied for fourth on the team as a defensive back. So great week for Trevon. Every week's been a great week for Trevon so far. And I'm happy we could finally give him his due. On my defensive game ball, I'm going to talk about somebody that we probably barely knew anything about heading into the season. But Gregory Russo of the Buffalo Bills. Sometimes he just goes by Greg, sometimes Gregory. I'm not 100% sure with the nomenclature. What I am 100% sure about is he made the defensive play of the day against Pat Mahomes last night, sniffing out a little bubble screen and deflecting it and somehow still coming down with it. It was unbelievable, and it really just speaks to not only what a great uh, athlete this guy is, but what kind of anticipation skills does it take to pull that off? Yeah, I mean, really, that play specifically, uh, just the ability to have the quick reaction to read an RPO like that. Uh, Pat Mahomes has been lethal releasing the ball quick this year and actually having the chance to not only get hands on a tackle, recognize the play, get a hand up, tip the ball, and recover it. You know, just an athletic feat for the ages. Not not for the ages. Let's not get too hyperbolic. Man, <laughs> what, what an impressive play. Great play. He also had a sack last night. The Bills' defense as a whole, I think, as we mentioned, has been great all season and really kind of had their best performance of the year last night, given the circumstances. So we had to give somebody on the defense a game ball, and I think just for snuffing out any last hopes at a Chiefs victory in truly spectacular fashion, it's got to go to our buddy Greg or Gregory Russo. Now let's talk about special teams. We already talked about what a weird special teams day it was, and I hate to say we're going to keep doing it later in the program, but there were some decent special teams performances yesterday, and I guess I'll take the lead here because there's a guy who I 
I don't want to say I blasted him, but I, I expressed my lack of faith in him as of a few weeks ago, and I, I did blast Mike Zimmer for trusting him to kick a game winner in a situation where they didn't necessarily need to settle for the length of game winner that he had. Yesterday, the Minnesota Vikings did everything they possibly could to blow a game against the Detroit Lions. And we found, like, they were up by 10, and we just stopped paying attention, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, 17-16 Detroit. Minnesota's got the ball with a minute left. We're like, what? Like, how does this Vikings team keep finding a way to do this week after week? And just when all hope seemed to be lost, in steps Greg Joseph, who, again, hasn't been a starting kicker in the NFL since 2018, only his second year ever doing it, and delivers with a 55-yard game winner to sink the Dan, Dan Campbell kneecap biters for the second week out of three. Uh, really impressive stuff, and I got to give Greg his credit. He showed up in the moment when it counted the most. Listen, I mean, it is very rare for the Minnesota Vikings to be on the winning end <laughs> of a uh, of a positive field goal play. Uh, they're probably not used to having too many uh, last-second field goals go their way. But uh, I do want to, you know, Tip my hat to the Dan Campbell knee biters, the Detroit Lions at this point, because it is it's it's pretty low hanging fruit, especially coming into the year, harping on all the uh, the Dan Campbell one liners and the you know quotables that he delivered. But I mean, the balls to go for the win, uh, fight for that two point conversion, uh, and actually make it late in the game, you know, really fight and put their position, uh, put their team in a position to win in regulation. Yeah, things didn't shake out, but man, if that you know. I really hope that Detroit's able to form some semblance of a competent team around Dan Campbell because his passion, his motivation is actually going to get this. Uh, I think he's really going to get some people to buy in Detroit, unlike you know the hardo Matt, Patricia, let's pretend to be Bill Belichick and have the team run sprints methodology. Uh, but yeah, this is not you know the Lions moment. This is the Minnesota Vikings moment. And glad to see a field goal finally go their way for once. Yeah, and I, I sort of misspoke because the game winner was only 54 yards. Greg Joseph also kicked a 55-yarder four minutes earlier to make it a 10-point game. So we can talk all we want about what a disaster the Minnesota Vikings' defensive effort was that led to them needing a 54-yarder to win the game. But Greg Joseph showed up when it counted the most, and that's the guy that we've got to highlight this week, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. But transitioning into different sides of special teams and, and ways in which special teams can impact a win versus a loss. Uh, Kale, talk to me about what happened in Carolina yesterday. Yeah, I mean, Carolina up five, fourth and three from their own 46, uh, four minutes left in the game. Uh, Carolina ends up having a, uh, a punt blocked by T.J. Edwards of the Eagles. Uh, they rec Eagles recover it. Carolina's 27. That sets up a short field for Philadelphia, and that eventually leads to the game-winning touchdown out of the Eagles. Uh, honestly, probably a uh, probably a pretty poor decision to end up punting it off there. Four minutes left. I get you want to maybe not have it at such a uh, short field. It's a little bit contentious there, but I mean, if you make that if you make that fourth and three conversion. That pretty much ices the game at that point. Uh, you at least put yourself in a position to kick it and go up eight. Uh, it's a long field goal if you don't do anything from there, but it's still a position to go up eight at this point. And uh, you know now you got to have the Eagles not only go down, but go down and score two. Uh, and the Sam Darnold interception at the end of the game is what ended up icing it. They had some time left on the clock. Uh, I think they got the ball back with 2.38. It was before the two-minute warning, so that was what iced it. But, I mean... 
Yeah, special teams. It matters, and it's hard. Great points all around. Yeah, I think TJ Edwards isn't the perfect example because he also plays on defense, but you love to see when guys make an impact in special teams that maybe aren't huge parts of the team otherwise. I mean, I think we would call him, you know, a an average sturdy linebacker for them. He's a third-year undrafted rookie out of Wisconsin, uh, has been, you know, generally middle of the pack in terms of defensive grades and, and tackle stats and anything like that. But uh, when you step up on a special teams play and, and make something happen, you know, the Philly Inquirer article came out today said the execution on that was absolutely picture perfect. That's what flips a loss to a win, and that is exactly the type of singular play that lands you in the game ball section here on TMB, and especially on the special teams route. So thank you very much, TJ, for your efforts yesterday. Transitioning now to what some people have called the best part of the program, you know, it's uh, it's the uniform debate that we have here week for week. I had a game yesterday, uh, I had a bunch of games, to be fair, that I really liked from a uniform perspective. It was a really good week for Really uniforms. good week. So let's just throw out some honorable mentions. Bears Raiders, I think if you play that game outdoors, it would have been number one for me easily. I just thought the dimming lights in the giant uh, Mark Davis funhouse kind of, you know, spoiled that uniform game for me just a bit. And I also loved the Browns-Chargers contrast there with the Chargers going baby blue, Browns with the orange helmets and brown pants. But the game that ultimately took it home for me was just a pure classic. And part of it has to do, I think, with it being in Dallas. We had a Cowboys-Giants game. Cowboys in their traditional home whites, the only team in football that consistently wear white at home. And that's because they do it the best out of anyone. And they have a funky uniform oddity where their pants are not actually silver. They're a grayish shade of turquoise, which apparently is inspired by the interior of some 70s Thunderbird cars. So just a fun nugget for all you folks at home. And uh, it doesn't match their helmet color. And the jersey also doesn't match the sticker on their helmet. But somehow it just all works. So had to find a way to get the Cowboys in there. And what better week to do it than against just a classic division rival with another classic uniform in the Giants. Yeah, for me, you know, I'm going to give a quick shout-out to the uh, the monochrome bowl of uh, New England Patriots at Houston Texans. Uh, the, the red, white, and blues were out and about. Uh, I still, you know, it was too good of a, uh, it was too good of a, uh, weekend for uniforms for me to actually give them the win, but I love having, you know, different variations of a single color palette come into play there. It was pretty cool to me. My game ball, or my uh, my matchup of the week is actually going to go to the field goal debacle of Packers Bengals. Uh, big fan of the uh, Packers Whites, uh, the matching yellow pants with yellow helmets. I think they do it the best. Really the only yellow you see in the league. But the Bengals, I think this is their best version of their new look, uh, new look uniform set. The black jerseys with the orange striped decals on the side, their white pants really make it work. Uh, especially with those helmets, I've, I thought this was a really, uh, really pretty game to look at. Yeah, with the Bengals, because you know we know the Packers have great uniforms. The Bengals. Struggled for a long time to get anywhere near the uniform segment of the column for me because they were messing up a good trope. They have the tiger stripes. That's their thing. I love their helmets. I think, you know, some people think they're busy, but hey, they're the Bengals. They have tiger striped helmets and they look really good. They should utilize that wherever they can. Their old uniform sets had some elements that were just head scratcher worthy. There were some side panels that I hated. 
Uh, the weird like B on the front collar was totally out of place. And I don't think these new sets are perfect by any means, but I think they've cleaned them up. Uh, I still wish they had like more of just a true shoulder yoke with tiger stripes, but what they are displaying is that they've at least, you know, had some people come into the building that have taken graphic design courses and have helped them design their uniforms. So good to get the Bengals some shine this week. Always love to mix it up with the color palettes in the uniform section of the pod. And I think all that's really left for us in the countdown this week is to talk about our head scratchers and this week delivered. Guys, you know, it takes us a few weeks into the season sometimes to really figure out who the coaches are going to be that we can go after for some head scratchers because that's my, my favorite kind of head scratcher is when we can just say, what the heck was this guy thinking? What happened? Uh, terrible decision making. And we didn't know who that coach was going to be this year. Last year, it was Anthony Lynn. He earned that right to be the TMB, you know. He, we had an award named after him on our year-end uh, podcast, the Anthony Lynn Memorial Head Scratcher of the Year. Uh, the early favorite for the Head Scratcher of the Year is David Culley. And let me just talk to you through the situation that the Texans went through uh, yesterday that earned him this spot in the column. So David Culley made the decision to, on fourth and two in the third quarter, with about 18 minutes left in the game total, Sent the punting team out on fourth and two in his own territory, up 22 to nine. And you say, okay, that's not that bad a decision, right? Like, they're up. They've got a clear advantage in this game. They've really impressed me offensively. Let's, you know, just punt the ball to the Pats and, and try to stop them and keep this 13 point lead. But then what happened was punter Cameron Johnston, one of these newfangled Aussie punters that we've all come to love in the league, comes up as if he's going to take a shotgun snap and starts stomping around. He starts looking. He sends a guy in motion. And we're all just like, what kind of squirrely nonsense is this from the Texans? And then he backs off as if he's to say, okay, no, I am actually going to punt this. He only backs up about seven, eight yards, takes the quick snap, goes for the quick kick, hits squarely off the helmet of his personal protector. And goes straight out of bounds, sideways, at his own 36-yard line. It's a zero-yard punt in the books, not a block, just a zero-yard punt. So I'm sorry, Cam, that's going to kill your stats for the year. And all of a sudden, the Pats go down, they get a field goal. Not a great drive from them, but they were set up in scoring position. Then they go get another field goal, and then they keep scoring every time they touch the ball. And all of a sudden, the Pats win the game. So that was miserable from David Culley. Easy head scratch of the year candidate so far. And I rewatched it as well. Cam Johnson could have just kicked it to his right, which is where his hips were pointed. But then he swiveled his hips mid-drop and kicked it left, which is a thing that these punters sometimes do. That was the wrong decision. That's exactly where his personal protector's head was. And the ball hits the head. So that's, that's point A for the head scratcher here on David Culley. And then it still gets worse because... Later in the game, they're still at this point up by seven. They get the ball down to the New England 38. It's fourth and four. You have a kicker, Kaimi Fairbairn, who's missed two extra points already this game, and his career long is 55. And he's not a particularly accurate kicker to begin with. So fourth and four, they set up as if to go for it. I agree with that decision. I don't think you should trust Kaimi Fairbairn in that situation. They let the play clock run all the way down, burn a timeout, and then send Kaimi Fairbairn out for the field goal. Like, what the heck, David Culley? He misses the field goal, obviously. Wasn't even close. 
we as Patriots fans were giddy that they were sending him out there to try the kick. He missed by a mile, sets the Patriots up in great field position, and they go down and score a game-tying touchdown. And then they, of course, don't have that timeout when the game comes down to the end and they're trying to burn timeouts and, and keep the clock for one last gasp. So, David Coley, for your all-around performance yesterday, uh, it is our distinct displeasure to put you in the Hall of Shame this week. That was so head-scratching. Kale, what do you got? That, listen, the punt aside, that was an anomaly, but the the decision, the deliberate decision to send Kaimi Fairbairn out there when he'd already missed two extra points on the day, sending him for, sending him out for what would have been his career long by a good handful of yards. One uh, yard, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thought it was longer, but still, sending him out for a career long in any situation after missing two uh, extra points is probably a terrible decision. Now, while you have David Culley in your Hall of Shame for head coaching decision-making, I have won Urban Meyer in my Hall of Shame for just his existence. Uh, last week for Football Outsiders, his whole Dublin, Ohio debacle led my Week in Quotes article, uh, the anonymous reports out of Jaguars camp, uh, saying that he has zero credibility, that he was laughed out of the room once he had left uh, for apologizing to the team. <laughs> hey, you um, know what? You know what the Jaguars broke their huddle with at the end of practice this week? What? Grind. Oh. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> oh my God, that is. Oh God, we love puns here. We love puns. Uh, <laughs> but this week, uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars had not one but two fourth and goals from the inches line. Uh, Urban Meyer failed to call a single QB sneak with a quarterback that is six foot six in Trevor Lawrence. Now I'm going to do a little Tuesday morning reading for you, courtesy of Dan Wetzel of Yahoo Sports at Dan Wetzel on Twitter. Uh, he chron- he uh, chronicled the exchange between Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence on the decision making. Urban Meyer on why no QB sneak for Trevor Lawrence from the six inch line. He's not quite comfortable with that yet. I know that might sound silly, but if you've never done it. It's something that we need to keep working on so that we can actually make that call in, in, in that situation. Lawrence, no, I feel comfortable. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't run it in the game, but I feel comfortable. No, QB sneak is something we can always go to, and I feel comfortable with it. <laughs> I mean, uh, Edge Sports had both of those decisions to go for it as two of the top five best decisions on the week in terms of positive win percentage. But, I mean, even in Urban Meyer's best moments, he finds a ways to muck it up. It's, it is a, it's bad in Jacksonville. I am really going to be surprised if he makes it to Halloween. It's been so bad. And what makes it even worse is Mike, <laughs> Urban Meyer, another great quote from after the game from Urban Wire. He says, uh, Urban Meyer reflects on failed fourth and goal attempt. Quote, I don't micromanage who's in the game. <laughs> What no, is your job as a head coach if not to micromanage? That's your job. That is literally your job description. <laughs> what else are you going to do? He's He's got uh, – he doesn't have James Robinson in the game. He's got backup Carlos Hyde in there. They hand it off to Hyde, and he doesn't get in. So even if you're not going to sneak it with Trevor Lawrence, which is absolutely the right decision because, as we've talked about throughout football history, QB sneaks are like the glitch in the system, the one fail-safe play you can run to pick up one yard, especially on the goal line you got the backup running back running it, and he's trying to claim that he doesn't bear any responsibility for who's in the game. No, Urban, that is your job. So he's failed every aspect of his job so far. He's lost the trust of his team. He never had it to begin with. 
it's just been like nobody's understood why Urban Meyer got this job from the beginning, specifically me. I haven't understood it. So thank you for highlighting Urban in our week, uh, in, in our head scratchers this week. I'm more than happy to throw feces on Urban's impending grave whenever I can. So that concludes our highlighted agenda items from this week. The only thing left to do is talk about the game we've got to watch in front of us tonight, Monday. Of course, you've already seen the game, but we're going to tell you what we think happens. Colts, Ravens. I got the Ravens. What about you? I've got the Ravens uh, by a pretty considerable margin. I honestly think the team with the most to lose in this one is not even playing in this game. Uh, Trevor Sycamore. On Twitter at Tampa Bay Trey, uh, posted a uh, posted a little preview of with uh, with Week Five in the books. This is the if the NFL draft for this weekend, and the Eagles currently slotted with three top ten picks. Uh, number three from Miami with the uh, you know the Dolphins questionable decision to trade up after trading down with the San Francisco 49ers in last year's draft. Uh, the Eagles pick is number 10 overall, and the Eagles also currently possess the Indianapolis Colts' seventh overall pick right now. Uh, that pick is conditional on Carson Wentz having at least 75% of Indianapolis's total snaps this year. And with Indy sitting at 1-3, uh, it's really going to start coming into question, if they lose this game, whether they're going to keep playing Carson Wentz. I get that the AFC South, uh, no one seems to want to win. But if they lose this game and go 1-4, and four, uh, I think you're going to make some pretty deliberate investigations as to whether they can actually pull this one out and actually win this division. Because I think they might be the first team to actually wave the white flag on the season, start benching Carson Wentz, playing either Jacob Eason or Sam Ellinger, seeing what they have there, and maintaining or trying to preserve as best they can their first-round pick and only have to give up a second for trading for a uh, very volatile quarterback. I agree that this is very much in the cards for the rest of the year. I've had my eye on it, and what I would say is how ironic and and appropriate would it be for the Philadelphia Eagles to lose out on a first-round pick this year, in part, well, not because, but right after the year where they tanked their final game of the season on national TV for all to see, specifically so they could improve their first-round pick last year. So that would be... I mean, that was that was Doug Peterson's final move heading out the door, but uh, even so, I think the karma still carries over from it. So I'd hate to see it, but I also think it would be completely appropriate if it were to end up coming to pass. But we both like the Ravens fairly comfortably. We're sweating it out over Lamar Jackson and fantasy all over the country. I know it, so I, I wanted to at least mention that. I know people are nervous, and I whatever happens tonight, I, I hope you won your fantasy league, guys. Uh, it's, it's tough out there, I know. So that just about does it for week five. It was an awesome week of football. It was an awesome week of sports. This week is only going to be better for sports. We're, uh, we're gearing up to take on ALDS game four later on this evening, and uh, just, you know, both crossing our fingers that things go our way. But keep enjoying the football. Keep enjoying the baseball. If there's any other sports going on out there, keep enjoying those too. And we'll be right back here next week. Kale, sign off for the fans. I mean, another weird, wild, and wonderful week of sports. You got to love it. It's why we tune in every Sunday. It's why we get so fired up about all of this. It's 
you never know what's gonna happen. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful, chaotic mess. That's a mess that we're happy to break down for you each and every Tuesday, and we look forward to doing it again in the next one. For Kale, I'm Jackson. Have a great rest of you.